Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted April 7, 2017, after President Trump's surprise missile strike on Syria, we consider the refugee tsunami that struck Greece from Syria and other embattled, beleaguered nations and the politics behind it, with former Fulbright fellow there, Tanya Karas. Her article in the WPJ Winter issue is headlined, Warehouse of Souls. We'll also point out top features in the new spring issue, cover line, Fascism Rising. But first, this week's Winners and Losers report from Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group Global Risk Consultants. Winners and losers, it's all the president's men. Steve Bannon, loser. He's taken off the Principals Committee for the National Security Council and uh, can't be happy about that. Jared Kushner winning, 36 years old. He goes to Iraq. He organizes the Xi Jinping Summit. Is there anything he can't do? We'll find out soon. Mike Flynn, loser. He says he wants immunity. He used to say that uh, that meant you were guilty. Guess he's guilty. Sean Spicer, loser. He's got the worst job in the entire country, and he's still there. Maybe he likes the abuse. Don't know. Devin Nunes, loser. At least for now, he takes himself off leading the Russian investigation. Probably a smart thing, but a little late. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. You went, uh, you went fire there. This camp, you went fire. After coming police... Uh, children is children small small children is broken legs is this fight yes after five days this I don't know this same like terrorist you know I'm coming this I'm coming Europa with freedom you know just I want freedom these people have personally cost me more than two thousand euros I had to install alarms in my home I had to buy guard dogs that's apart from what they've stolen and all the worry they've caused voices of a crisis courtesy of Al Jazeera English and Associated Press. First one of more than 4,500 migrants essentially stranded, some would say imprisoned, on the Greek island of Chios after arson at his holding camp last fall and before the killingly cold and wet winter that followed. Then one of the island's 50,000 residents complaining about the cost of the refugee crisis to them. And the situation is similar across many of the Greek islands, more or less close by the long Turkish coast. The European Union made deals with Turkey and Greece meant to stem the flow and improve the handling of migrants fleeing war, terror, and poverty in Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, and parts of Africa. But they have been overwhelmed, under-resourced, and seriously soured by the unexpected numbers involved and by changing politics in Ankara and across the continent. This has turned the Greek islands into de facto open-air prisons and made financially hard-pressed Greece not only the continent's lifeguard at sea and first aid provider ashore, but its unwilling warden as well. So writes former Athens-based Fulbright fellow Tanya Karas in the WPJ Winter Issue. Her article is headlined, Warehouse of Souls, How the EU Abandoned Greece. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Tanya Karas, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you so much for having me. Remind us of the quid pro quo uh, of that EU deal with Turkey. Who got what? The deal was signed. Um, it, it was meant to stem the flow of uh, 
hundreds of thousands of refugees that um, came ashore in 2015, completely unprecedented. And Turkey was supposed to get um, up to 6 billion euros to step up patrols of its coast and stop people from coming. And it was also supposed to improve conditions in its camps to sort of de-incentivize people from coming to Europe. Turkey was also supposed to accept refugees who were deported from Greece on the idea that Turkey was a safe country for them. And the idea was to get refugees to Europe directly from Turkish camps so they wouldn't have to cross the Aegean Sea and that this would also de-incentivize them from coming. And Turkey's reward for cooperation was supposed to be relaxed visa rules for its 80 million citizens to travel to the EU. And what kind of help was Greece supposed to get for the migrants who did land on their shores? Greece's role was basically to temporarily care for all of these people. And I said temporarily because under a separate deal within the EU called the relocation scheme, um, most of the refugees in Greece were supposed to be moved to other EU countries. And that was extremely slow. So, you know, people were just stuck in Greece for very long periods of time. And then at the same time, under the EU's deal with Turkey, Greece and particularly the islands were supposed to be these temporary holding centers until people could be sent back to Turkey, again, on this premise that Turkey is a safe country for them. And the EU was supposed to provide Greece with hundreds of extra personnel to support its asylum service, to move the process, the asylum process along more quickly so that people would be um, deported to Turkey faster. The European Commission and various European governments, they gave more than $650 million to Greece since 2015, making this possibly the most expensive humanitarian response in history with very little to show for it. Talk about the politics behind the process bogging down. Uh, First, the right-wing populist, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim tide sweeping Europe, even in initially most receptive Germany. This is a problem, of course, across Europe. But if we could just take the island of Chios, which I mentioned in my article as an example, it's kind of a microcosm for this. Even though Chios is part of Greece, which is still in the thick of a devastating financial crisis. Chios itself is a wealthier island. It escaped the brunt of the financial crisis. But now people find their livelihoods being threatened because they've had hundreds of thousands of refugees moving through their island to northern Europe over the last two years. People are feeling directly threatened by this. They're threatened. They feel threatened by having this association as being, you know, the the island where refugees land. And so you have people lashing out. And then what's happening in Greece with um, this deal where refugees are being held in Greece and held on the islands until they can be deported, um, you have refugees stuck with no money, starting to steal from people. Unfortunately, um, you have a lot of clashes among residents and refugees who are just stuck on this island. And you see this playing out on a much larger scale um, throughout Europe where you have kind of this uh, anti-refugee sentiment, um, people who have been economically marginalized for years, you've had these feelings kind of bubbling under the surface. 
And now suddenly um, all of these refugees and migrants are here and they're, you know, they need our help and um, they're, they're getting so much attention. And that has also kind of given new energy to these feelings of these, you know, previously marginalized groups, the, these right-wing groups that were there all along and now gaining strength. And so the EU countries are not fulfilling to the degree that they promised uh, their share or taking their fair share of, uh, of migrants. Definitely not. Under the, the relocation scheme across the EU, there were supposed to be more than 100,000 refugees taken directly from Greece, preventing people and, and Italy. So that was supposed to prevent people from landing in those countries and then making their way north um, on smuggling routes. But that hasn't happened. Only a few thousand people have actually been relocated to other EU countries. Um, it's, up to the, it's up to other EU countries to actually take people from Greece and Italy. But because those processes have been so slow, um, you have all of these refugees and migrants still stuck in those countries waiting for the day that you know, may or may not come where they may be able to go somewhere else. Increasing repression by the Erdogan regime in Turkey, especially after a failed coup, has produced second thoughts in the EU as well about at least that part of the deal that drops visa requirements for Turks. And Erdogan is furious over objections to campaigning among Turkish citizens uh, already living in Europe to vote for the new constitutional powers he wants. Say more about the, the change of politics in Turkey. After the coup in particular, Ankara definitely wants to drum up support among the millions of Turks who are migrants living in Turkey um, to you know, vote in this referendum next month in Turkey um, to potentially give him more powers. That could see Erdogan uh, remain in office until 2029. This has caused uh, Turkey's attempts to campaign in Europe have caused a lot of issues recently with um, European countries trying to prevent them from campaigning. And all of these things, you know, all along, things like the EU-Turkey deal have just become highly, highly politicized. For example, um, Erdogan has said several times that, you know, if the visa rules were not relaxed for his citizens, then he would open the floodgates and allow more refugees to come uh, from from Turkey to to Europe, so all of these all of these the refugees just sort of like become these chess pieces in a major you know game between the EU and Turkey over you know Turkey trying to assert itself and um, you know gain more respect and power in the EU's eyes and maybe be part of the EU club, but maybe it doesn't want to anymore. It's, you know, it's, all of these things have just become highly politicized. There are also special problems for Kurdish migrants facing deportation to Turkey. Definitely. Um, there was a UN report last week that found that um, over 500,000 people have been displaced from Kurdish areas in Turkey and 2,000 people have been killed. This is something that a lot of us, a lot of people in the EU often forget that Turkey is in a civil war right now. Um, so to say that Turkey is a safe place for, um, for many Syrian Kurds who end up in Greece that doesn't make any sense at all.
We talked about Hios as a good example. It's a lovely island. I've been there. I have friends there. How many migrants are currently in limbo in Greece all in all, particularly on all the islands? And, and what's the rate of arrival these days? The official government figure is around 62,000 uh, with about 14,000 on the islands. But in truth, no one really knows uh, because so many people have been smuggling themselves out of Greece. You have camps that might be reported as a few hundred people um, on you know, official government statistics. However, those camps might actually be completely empty or just have like a few dozen people in them because people um, are migrating from, uh, to urban areas. So they don't like the conditions of the camp, so they're going to uh, find their own apartments and squatting in parts of Greece, um, sorry, in Athens and in Thessaloniki, which is a, another major city in northern Greece. So when that happens, they sort of drop off the government's radar and they're no longer counted. And also um, thousands and thousands, nobody really knows how many, have already uh, smuggled themselves to other parts of Europe since the borders closed. In terms of daily arrivals, we're seeing some days it can reach 100, but now, these days it's typically much less. So as you can imagine, it's much different from the days of uh, fall 2015, where there were days when we would see 6,000 people arriving. Media coverage makes us very aware of fatalities among those crossing the Aegean to Greece, but it's even higher across the Mediterranean to Italy. What are the relative numbers? Going from the Mediterranean across to Italy, um, there were, last year, there were more than 3,000 deaths versus, um, sorry, in 2015, um, whereas the, the comparative numbers across the Aegean from Turkey to Greece were closer to 800. So um, the, the journey across the Aegean um, from Turkey to Greece, it's very short. It's only six miles in some places versus the journey from um, Libya and Egypt across to Italy. That journey is typically days long and people have a much, much higher um, risk of death. And last year there were um, more than 5,000 deaths across and, and most of them occurred um, on, the, on that route from Libya and Egypt to Italy. So it's a much, much, much more dangerous route. Talk about the confusing and contradictory requirements the migrants face for permanent acceptance into Europe, often splitting up members of the same family, you found. Sure. The policies are not often aimed at keeping families together, unfortunately. Um, so, for example, sometimes you might have a family where you have two children who are um, maybe 20 and 21 and they're not considered part of the family because they're viewed as adults and they might be considered their own case. And so, therefore, um, if the entire family, let's say, is uh, a candidate for relocation to another EU country, those older children may be left behind. Um, the same thing happens with um, family reunion for families that have members outside of the European Union. So let's say um, you have some older children who are currently in Syria or um, in Turkey or somewhere else and you have been granted asylum um, in the EU and are entitled to family reunion your older children may not be able to come with you. And the, the same is true of um, 
cases where a family tie may have been formed in transit. So let's say a couple meets you know, on the refugee route and gets engaged. <laughs> if for some reason they end up in different countries, they're not entitled to um, be reunited. They have to actually get special permission. There's no guarantee that these kinds of families um, will be reunited under EU law. And so these are the sorts of cases where you see a lot of people still smuggling themselves um, just to be with their family members. We've talked about the diplomacy and the legalities. What actual conditions for migrants on the islands did you see? Physical, medical, psychological? It's very difficult all around. Um, in terms of people's psychological conditions, I would say it's deteriorating very much. Every time I visited, um, I was living in Greece for a year and a half, and after the border closed, immediately you, see, you saw a deterioration in people's psychological state, and that has continued. And it's just this sort of you know, the unknown. It's, people have no idea how long they're going to be locked up in these, um, you can't even call them camps, like they are detention centers. They have, you know, barbed wire and very high walls and um, the Greek uh, army is controlling who goes in and out. And so, you know, people, if people at least had kind of a deadline for when they would get out of these camps, then they would feel a lot better. Um, that's, in, that's particularly true on the islands because on the islands, those are the people who are at risk of being um, sent back to Turkey under the EU-Turkey deal. And so for them, you know, they, they might not be able to, after all of this, after all of this, you know, being locked up for all these months, almost a year now, um, they might have to be sent back to Turkey after all. So that's the psychological aspect. In terms of medical um, Oftentimes, people don't have access to basic, um, basic medical care. Uh, a lot of NGOs, such as MSF, have actually, sorry, um, Doctors Without Borders have actually pulled out because they, uh, it's, for them, it's sort of a protest because they don't want to be seen as supporting uh, what they view as inhumane conditions created by the EU-Turkey deal. And so there is a severe shortage of access to medical care. Um, and, you know, th things like that often contribute to people's psychological state deteriorating as well. And are they living in tents, in barracks, in uh, ship oh, converted shipping containers? I mean, what actually inside the barbed wire uh, are their domiciles? So on the islands, people are living in a variety. Um, usually they're more shipping containers, but because there is, the camps are so overcrowded, many of them are living in these um, tiny little pub tents, um, you know, more suitable for a camping trip, short-term camping trip. And, you know, people have now been living in them for months and months. And it got really bad in, uh, in the winter because, uh, you know, Greece, you know, typically we don't associate Greece, and the, especially not the Greek islands, with snow. But this year they, they had some really severe snows and people were living in those conditions um, throughout a really harsh winter. And a couple of them actually um, died this winter because of these conditions that they're living in. What's behind the fires at holding camps? Accident, frustrated migrants, angry islanders? Uh, that's also a combination. So there were a, there's been several fires that have been set in the last few months. 
Uh, typically, they are set by refugees in protest. So they tend to target um, the containers of NGOs or the Greek Asylum Service, and they are protesting just the conditions that they're living in and also the lack of answers about their future. Sometimes, though, um, it, you know, there's often very little proof of this, but sometimes there um, is reason to believe that the the fires have been started by angry islanders um, upset at their livelihoods being disturbed. For example, on Hios in the fall, there was a week where there was a, um, a bunch of meetings of the uh, very right-wing neo-Nazi Golden Dawn group, and they, um, th there were some suspicious fires that week for sure that it definitely looked like Golden Dawn themselves uh, broke into some warehouses and, and set fires and then blamed it on the refugees. But they, haven't, they didn't actually like, take responsibility for that. Among the worst encampments on the mainland was the former Athens airport at uh, Eliniko. Tell us more about the situation there. That camp still exists. Um, it's both a, the former Athens airport as well as a abandoned um, sporting complex from the 2004 Olympics that was held in Greece. And uh, that's basically a, a free-for-all. It's just a sprawling camp, and there's um, a lot of tents. You know, it, it's pretty ironic, actually. Like, you walk into this abandoned airport, and there's this departures lounge, but you have all these people stuck there, and it's clear that they're never going to depart for anywhere um, because they don't have money. And there's... Um, there's a lot of people living in there, and it, it's become a, a very permanent-looking encampment. And that's been there for – that actually um, was home to refugees and migrants for several years now. And now it's just taken on this tent city quality. You also visited a, a camp at uh, Idomeni, I think it's pronounced, on the mainland, now closed. What was that like? Idomeni is actually the name of a neighboring village where um, people were crossing because they would follow the train tracks north um, through Greece into Macedonia and then, you know, further north on their way to Germany and northern Europe. And Idomeni, the village, was home to only about 125 people. And at one point last spring, there were something like 12,000 refugees camped out there um, along the train tracks. And that also became this sprawling tent city um, where, you know, people, uh, the refugees were often blocking the train tracks in protest because the border had been closed and they just wanted to pass through. Um, you had protests every day. Usually it was very peaceful. Um, there, there was sort of this feeling of hope that I have not seen in any camps throughout Greece currently because at Idomeni, people um, could see the road ahead. It was right in front of them. They could see that on the other side of this border fence, the train lines continued, and that was where they wanted to go to. And because the border had just and because they still had in their minds, you know, this image of European goodwill that they'd been hearing about, they really believed that the border was going to open. And so Izomeni had sort of this 
hopeful atmosphere. The conditions were really bad. It was really muddy, and people lived in camping tents, and the, the conditions were terrible, actually. But people were still very, very hopeful um, because they had not yet come to terms with the reality that the the open borders um, had now shut and that they would have to, you know, now return to underground routes. And where were the migrants there ultimately sent? Last May, they were taken from Idomeni and put on buses, um, and they were taken to warehouses, literal warehouses, abandoned um, warehouses. Many of them, you know, had been factories and whatnot that were closed during the financial crisis in Greece over the last few years and um, completely, you know, not ever meant for human beings to live inside. And uh, so they were brought to these warehouses and camps were set up inside of them. You have cloth tents and sometimes containers set up inside of uh, these empty warehouses. It's very, very hot um, in the summer and very, very cold in the winter. They're very poorly ventilated and there's no insulation. Greek uh, Premier Alexis uh, Tsipras himself supplied the title for your article, warning that his country was becoming a, quote, black box for migrants and warehouse of souls. How do you see Greece, Turkey, EU nations, and international organizations moving to deal with the crisis going forward, if they do? I think that Greece is still very much a warehouse of souls, um, despite this being, you know, the most expensive humanitarian crisis response ever. Um, there's, like I said earlier, there's very little to show for it. People are still living in pretty abysmal conditions in the camps run by the Greek government. And a lot of different parties are to blame here. Um, you have the EU, which has made a lot of promises to Greece that it would take uh, refugees from Greece to, to be relocated in other countries and haven't followed through. And then you have Greece, which keeps um, mismanaging EU funds by funneling all the money into short-term solutions rather than make a long-term investment in refugees because they're trying to create a situation where even the refugees are incentivized to, to ask to get out. And they want the EU to see that the refugees shouldn't stay here in Greece. At this rate, with relations being as, you know, as low as they are, um, I think that we're going to need a, a really big turnaround in, um, you know, all, all of these broken promises need to be turned around here. Um, the EU needs to step up. Greece needs to step up. Um, Turkey also needs to step up. And they need to begin, you know, putting aside politics and looking after the actual rights and needs of the refugees. That's the part that always falls by the wayside here because politics has always come out as, as more important. Um, and, and that's the primary problem of this entire crisis is that the EU has made this into a political crisis rather than a crisis of, of, of people. Tanya Karras, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Tanya Karras, a correspondent focused on migration and human rights currently based in Lebanon, was a U.S. Fulbright Fellow in Greece last year studying Europe's refugee crisis. 
Reporting for her story in the World Policy Journal winter issue, Warehouse of Souls, was supported by the Ground Truth Project. Since we spoke, the threat that Turkey might reopen the refugee floodgate increased as President Erdogan escalated rhetorical attacks on EU nations, blocking rallies for new constitutional powers he wants. Charging that Germany and the Netherlands were acting like Nazis and fascists, the Turkish leader warned that racist anti-Islamic policies would make Europeans terrorist targets everywhere. The flow of refugees from Syria's civil war and the battle with ISIS could also increase, or ultimately diminish, if President Donald Trump extends an about-face cruise missile strike into escalating U.S. military intervention following his emotional response to shocking pictures of victims, especially children, from a poison gas attack widely attributed to the Syrian regime. Military strikes may also impact Russian troops backing President Bashar al-Assad, precipitating a confrontation with Moscow. Ironically, the White House earlier suggested that Assad's ouster was no longer a priority. Featured in the new WPJ Spring issue, cover line Fascism Rising, you'll find articles on Donald Trump's savage capitalism, on the battle to control Ukraine's future through its past, and on how the left can right itself, plus the retro-macho politics of Brazil and the infrastructure of counterinsurgency. And listen next week when our podcast will talk with Harvard Divinity School professor Leila Ahmed about being Muslim in America today. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.